The Way Out Podcast, episode 279. What is your name? Hi, I'm Veronica Valley. Veronica Valley? What was your substance of choice or DOC? Um, I want to say it was cigarettes. Mm. Cigarettes were like my, I love cigarettes, <laughs> but then alcohol, um, men, uh, then uh, cocaine brought me to my knees. Somebody once told me in a recovery meeting uh, that they identified as a what you got a holic. Yeah. <laughs> I never, like, I don't recall any drug education in school. Maybe there was some, but I just always thought that stuff didn't apply to me. Like, I just took it. Like, I never thought any of the warnings. I just thought that was for other people. And I don't know. I just took whatever. Yeah. But definitely, like, cigarettes and alcohol and flirting with inappropriate men while doing cocaine in the toilets was my, like, ideal scenario. You mentioned cigarettes being the true gateway drug, and I yeah. quote, in Soberful, and I can absolutely relate with that and couldn't agree more. I remember reading, it was a novel, and I can't remember what it was, but the main character was describing starting a new job, and he would always find the cigarette smokers, because they were the ever so slightly up. And I just, that line really stuck with me, that that's so true. 100%. Them's are my peeps. Those are my people. I know. You know. And the people who go to the bar at Friday lunchtime. That's Those it. Those are my people. Those too. are my peeps. <laughs> what is your clean and or sober date? Uh, so May 2nd, 2000. Five months after the millennium. Congratulations. That is what we would call substantial and meaningful recovery. Yeah, thank you. I, I, yeah, I'm going to be 22 years this year. So I got sober when I was 27. And I remember thinking like, wow, like 20 years of sobriety, that's like really something. And I'm going to be like so old, like, <laughs> like so old, like really, really old, like pretty much life is over. <laughs> I remember thinking that my first two attempts at recovery, one in my teenage years and then one in my early 20s, thinking, I can't stay sober for the rest of my life. That's crazy. That's too long to be sober, right? Uh, yeah. I, I, I got... I, how long have you been sober? Seven years. Oh, wonderful. Congratulations. Um, I When I got sober at 27... I was fully subscribed to the belief system that alcohol was the best way to have fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relax, and reward yourself. So I completely knew that my life was over and I would be just very dull and boring and just, you know, not really kind of just work and go home, that'd be it really. Um, and I was very unhappy with that idea, um, but I accepted it because I understood at that point that sobriety was the only solution for the insanity in my head to stop. And I wanted peace. And I was prepared to sacrifice the fun, the excitement, the partying, all of that to just get peace. If, if that's what it was offering, then I'll take that deal. 
you were going to take that trade off. You were resigned Mm -hmm. to a life of boredom and dullness so that you didn't have to continue on the insanity train. Yes. Yeah, basically. That was it. And and yeah, I, I, um, I, I would have done anything at that point. I mean, if, 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 and I'd spent a long time, I hit a rock bottom at 18. Uh, I, I mean, I was ready then. Uh, I went into drug-induced psychosis from magic mushrooms, a magic mushroom trip. I mean, I don't want to go from a tangent, but this all this kind of talk now about microdosing and ketamine and all these treatments which I'm not I'm not against medical assisted recovery by any means I totally support that but if there's something I know I can't with in this world it is hallucinogenic (laughs) I cannot with that stuff Veronica I couldn't identify with that statement anymore Uh, hallucinogens for me were a terrible experience LSD ended up being a horrible experience both times I did it mostly because I'm such a control freak and that stuff controlled me from start to finish without question at least with alcohol although I didn't have control I had the illusion of it I had the illusion of control with alcohol I had the illusion of control with marijuana I had no illusion that I was under control when I was on psychedelics in any way, shape, or form. Those things had me from start to finish, and they weren't going to let go until they were good and ready to be done with me. And I didn't like that. Yeah, I mean, I started messing around with them when I was 16. And like everything I did at the beginning, it was amazing. Until it wasn't. Uh, I had panic attacks and intense anxiety, paranoia, couldn't be in groups, couldn't be, you know, couldn't do. And and that's what then tipped my drinking to uh, drinking to cope. And I was still like, I was never even at the end, like a daily drinker or a morning drinker or anything like that. But I like to go out, I would always have to have a drink or two before going out. And and just very quickly, I need a drink or two before going into any social situation as much as I possibly can. Um, but that tipped the balance with my drinking. It was, I, I look back on that time and I just, I I, I don't know how I survived. We survived that. Oh I don't my know gosh, isn't that, did, right? isn't that the miracle? We survived this thing? Like, wow. I know, yeah. This might be a tough question to answer mm-hmm. for a woman like you. How do you serve the recovery community? So, um, how do I say that's a great question? You know, that's a really good question. Everybody should be asked that. So, how I serve the recovery community? Um, so, I have been a member of twelve-step communities from the sixth week of my sobriety and I have always uh, sponsored women in my local community um, I've sponsored several hundred probably at this point and I do service com- commitments in that community as and when I can I was a coffee person recently I've always done this work so I have paid work that I do which is soberful 
Um, and part of that, my podcast is is free and with no advertising on it. We just like it to be of service. Um, and I'll kind of speak anywhere that will have me. <laughs> I'm quite happy to. I'm speaking. My chiropractor actually asked me the other day to speak at the local something or other. And I'm going to go speak there. So, um, yeah, that's what that's what I do. So and it's really important to separate. I, I, so my paid work, I am qualified. I, mm. I qualified as a psychotherapist. Um, with in addiction all of all of that kind of stuff so that's i'm qualified as a professional to to do a lot of things and then there's a lot of stuff that i do just as a person in recovery yeah sponsoring other women in recovery and my experience in sponsoring is such a tremendous gift to us you know it's the cherry on the cake and uh, i remember so i um so I got sober at 27. So it's, I got sober in a very strange way. I was, so I had all these panic attacks, couldn't be in groups of people. And my degree was in women's studies. And I've come to this conclusion that the job that I could do was be a therapist because it was one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> so the local college only had an addictions counseling program. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll give that a go. Went along, kind of found it interesting. I didn't make a conscious decision to stop drinking. Mm. I knew there was something wrong with me. I had no doubt about that. I thought it was a rare mental health disorder that nobody else in the world had. I knew I didn't shouldn't do cocaine, but I didn't really think, I thought my drinking, you know, was normal because that's what my peer group did. We went out and got completely wasted three to four nights a week. That's, I just thought that was normal. So I, I didn't ever think like I must stop drinking. Like I thought I must stop using cocaine and I definitely, and I quit smoking a year before I got so sober, but I never, I, I thought drinking, I never knew not drinking was an option. You know, you, you, you become, when you're a teenager, you're, you're going to become an adult. You will get a driver's license. You will get a job and you will drink alcohol, right? There's no, I, I didn't, I look back and I think, God, that's kind of how crazy the indoctrination mm. in my culture was that you are going to drink alcohol like the only like rock bottom poor sods who live on the street who have no other choice they quit but nobody else does mm. so um i one day i decided not to drink and it turned into a week and it turned into a month and then at about the six week mark i thought i'm gonna go to one of these meetings to see what these poor folk are like that <laughs> i i will be counseling in the future and i went and i didn't um relate at all didn't identify never had a DUI never been fired from a job all that kind of stuff didn't like I was a lot younger until I heard a man talk about fear and he spoke about fear in a way that I'd never heard anyone speak about fear that he drank because he was frightened of everything and anything and nothing mm -hmm. and I just sat there and was like hit by that like <gasps> I was like that's me that's why I drank what what do I do? And they were like the 12 steps. I'm like, sign me up. So uh, that worked really well for three years. And I did the work of a fashion. And then at three years, I hit another bottom. And it was, and I, I find this very interesting because I see a lot of people follow this pattern. And it was a romantic relationship. My romantic relationship history was a train wreck. And it used to push me into the black 
suicidal hole of despair. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, because it's, um, I was all right. I was, I mean, when we stop drinking and using substances, we're better. Like we feel better. Our brain chemistry can begin to get back to normal. We're going to be better, but that only works for skits so far and only works for so long, right? Before the baggage and the subconscious patterns and the trauma and the hurt that we're carrying around demands our attention. And that always manifested for me in my romantic relationship patterns. And then that happened at three years sober and I was suicidal and I was just like, it, 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 this isn't right. I'm sober now. I'm doing all the things. Why isn't this better? And that was a gift because it then pushed me into doing much deeper work on myself that began to finally resolve all of that stuff. What does recovery mean to you? So recovery for me is about emotional sobriety. So re recovery is a process. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use what the big book said. For me, the big book has the best description of the alcoholic condition, alcoholism, which is the bedevilments. But they are succinctly described in the doctor's opinion as restless, irritable, and discontented. And I was born discontented. I was just born looking for the thing that was gonna fix me, and I would often get the thing, and it was great for about four and a half minutes, and then it wasn't, and then I looked for the next thing. So I, that that's my, almost my default state is restless, irritable, and discontented. Um, you know, and the, the bedevilments, I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head, but we, you know, we were having trouble with personal relations. We couldn't uh, seem to make a living. We were full of fear, all, that kind of stuff. And that's how, what, how I felt at th three years sober. I, and I wasn't thinking about having a drink. I didn't, wasn't, I didn't want a drink. That was off the table for me. But I, I did not know how to change this internal state that just tormented me so much. What we recover from is that. And, and what it says in the big book is that we are rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. And for me, that's what's on the table. That's the deal here. And, and I also am going to say, the 12 steps are not the only way to get that. There are many methods. The 12 steps are just ancient spiritual wisdom. There are many methods. I think the most important thing is the consistency in whatever those methods are. So with the help of the 12 steps, but also a bunch of other stuff I did, you know, therapy, there was lots of personal development work I did. I did a lot of work on my limiting beliefs and my subconscious programming. All of that led me to recover from a state of being restless, irritable, and discontented. That is no longer my default position. My default position is just kind of balanced, just kind of, it's all right. Just, today's all right, I'm all right, you're all right, we're all right. And I have appropriate emotional responses to events. The emotional sobriety is feeling comfortable in your own skin and having appropriate emotional responses to events. So that's the, de that's the destination. That's where we want to get to, that we want to recover from this internal emotional unmanageability because it's an internal condition and we want to get to a place of that's 
uh, balanced and we're comfortable in our own skin. So that's what recovery is for me. I love all of that. I distinctly remember at some point late in my progression of addiction and alcoholism, having this really uncomfortable truth hit me in the face that I could no longer evade or deny, which was I could not sit in a room by myself sober for any length of time. I could not be with myself and that had been since I could remember. I could not live inside of my own skin and I never felt okay unless I was under the influence of a substance or engaging in some sort of addictive behavior. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it, right? I, I mean, I remember so many times wanting to run away from myself. Like, like, yeah, I mean, that's the death. And that's what we recover from. So uh, going back to what the 12 steps talk about, and I talk about this a lot in my work, is um, step one, our lives are unmanageable. So what, what people misinterpret that to mean is, when you have an alcohol problem and your life's unmanageable and you're wrecking your car and getting arrested and you're getting fired from your job, those are all definitely signs that you have an alcohol problem, but those are the external signs. The definition is actually internal unmanageability. It's emotional unmanageability. And that shows up years before the external stuff. I think that predated and ever picking up a substance. And I mean, now through my training and my work, I can see how my childhood set me up from that. I, I was about 10 when I kind of came to this realization that my parents didn't know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Like, I just kind of knew that they had no clue how to get by in this world. And that's, what that does is create a feeling of um, um, lack of safety. So the emotional management come, grew from that. So that is, uh, that definition for me, and that's what I see in all my clients and the people I work with, because on the, on the outside, they look fine. They look fine. It's the internal stuff. That's kind of my big message in the world is, is emotional sobriety and, and just learning how to have dominion over our internal worlds. It is not only possible, but the, the goal here. Indeed. Welcome Way Out faithful and first-timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com 
for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, we have recovery coach, psychotherapist, author, and person in long-term recovery herself, Veronica Valley. Veronica was an absolute delight to interview for myriad reasons not the least of which is her remarkable ability to get to the heart of what our core problem is and precisely how we could address it with her new book, Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. Many of us, myself included, can identify with the persistent internal emotional and mental turmoil that is so eloquently described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous by Bill Wilson as restlessness, irritability, and discontentedness that prior to recovery is but temporarily assuaged through succumbing to our addictive behavior or substance of choice. This presents the impossible predicament of not being able to manage our addiction, yet not being able to tolerate abstaining from our addiction lest we become, you guessed it, restless, irritable, and discontent. Indeed, that was my dilemma and that of countless others prior to doing the deep, meaningful work that defines the process of recovery, which is why Veronica's book is both a desperately needed and exceedingly valuable recovery resource. It answers the question, to what do I do now that I quit my addiction, with her five pillars of sustainable sobriety. These pillars, which are movement, connection, balance, process, and growth, address our counterproductive default thought and behavior patterns that all too often conspire against us and become all but impossible to ignore once we've put the proverbial plug in the jug. Veronica shares how doing this work delivers on the promise our substance or behavior of choice originally offered and much more. A life that is meaningful, 
rewarding, and fulfilling. You might call it a soberful life. So listen up. Veronica Valley, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. I can't wait to talk a whole lot about this amazing piece of work that you have put out into the world called Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. And to talk a little bit about your experience in recovery over two decades worth by now, which is amazing. Before we do any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. Thank you. I uh, My name is Veronica Valley. I am, uh, I, my sobriety date is May 2nd, 2000, be sober almost 22 years. I think we said that. Um, I was a former psychotherapist in the UK. I worked in different rehabs and in private practice, and I now work as a sober coach. And I created the Soberful program a few years ago because I, I saw that there was a lack of, there was a need for people to really understand what the work of sobriety is. Because a lot of people who are getting sober now are not gonna go to AA and that's fine. Um, and that's one method and one method only. And it's also, you know, it's a spiritual program. What I wanted to offer was the therapeutic work. So the Soberful program accompanies, it stands alone or it can accompany the 12 steps or the women for sobriety or smart recovery or whatever it is you do. Um, it's, it's about, you know, what's the therapeutic stuff that will help you heal some internal situations and help you grow into the person that you're capable of being now you're sober. I loved so much of what this book contains not the least of which is a great explanation of the alcohol-free movement versus the sobriety community and the recovery community. Mm. And you do an excellent job of addressing both of those in this book, Soberful. And regardless of where you fall, on that spectrum, a choice to be alcohol-free or coming to an awakening that alcohol is a problem in your life, however you wanted to find that, and you do a great job of walking through that as well, how much is my alcohol use costing me? There's five pillars in here that will help you get to where you want to be because, because the end isn't just not drinking. The, the goal isn't just not to drink. That's not the goal. That's where we start. Yes. Right. So mm. this book does such a great job of understanding that not drinking is the first requirement for us to get to where we want to be, but that's not the end in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, so, the, the, you know, it's really great in the time that I've been sober to see this kind of alcohol-free movement mm. take shape because 
like we were saying before, um, I grew up in a time, I'm Generation X, where not drinking alcohol was just simply not presented as an option. Unless you come from a specific religion, like being a Mormon or a Muslim, you drink. That's what we do. We, we drink. That's a fact. You just need to manage that. Figure it out. Like that was, the, I mean, that's the, all what people do for a long time is I get that I don't, I don't like the consequences and I don't like the cost. I just got to figure out the magic formula. If I could just figure it out so I can drink, but not be late for work or ratty with my kids or like, you know, blah, 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 hungover. And it's like just trying to figure out that conundrum of, of which there is no solution, but we really try. We really try to figure it out. Um, so not drinking is just like, I, I thought that was a like radical, radical. I mean, it was, I think 22 was. years ago, I think it was still presented as, as a, you know, this is for like, rock bottom street alcoholics who like clearly have no other choice but if you have another choice man you're gonna carry on drinking um whereas we are now seeing this rise of the alcohol-free movement and the other thing is i have to say when i did get sober i did think everyone drank like me and I, when i did meet people who just didn't drink just didn't like it just didn't want to i was kind of like whoa <laughs> like who does that but I think there's more and more people doing it. So I was just in London and some friends of mine at Club Soda uh, organized a um, pop-up off-license. That's what we call a liquor store in England. Uh, it's called the Offie. And they had the most incredible selection of alcohol-free drinks, wine, beer, alcohol-free spirits. I mean, everything you could imagine. Champagne. And they, it's really interesting uh, the crowd that they get, um, you know, they said they get the sober crowd. They get the people who are sober, who have got to a bad place and had no choice and rebuilt themselves. They get uh, a lot of Muslims and people from different religions. And then yeah, they just get people who don't want to drink. Some of those are athletes. Some of those people drink, you know, a couple of glasses of wine, maybe a couple of times a month, but want to enjoy a nice drink, but don't want to have the alcohol. And it's really interesting to see that grow. And I love that because I'm also Gen X, 43 years mm. old. So I very much identify growing up and coming of age in a culture that alcohol was ubiquitous. And it was understood that you would absolutely drink. And I partook in that far earlier than the legal drinking age for sure. But regardless, it was understood as you became an adult, you're going to drink. And, mm -hmm. and, and you, your job was to figure out how to make sure that you could manage it and keep that thing in your life. And you know, for me and my crew growing up, drink like a man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's interesting because I was a generation in the 90s where... Um, the alcohol industry co-opted feminism, the equality, you can drink like the men, like drink like the men, uh, which of course women can't because physically our bodies cannot right. do that. Um, and uh, the rise of the, in the in England, England, it was the Ladette culture. It was women behaving badly. 
And I believe that women have every right to behave badly if they want to and do that, by the way, unmolested. But like that, I thought it was, you know, I've been a feminist since I was 20. Um, I thought that was feminist. Like we can drink the boys under the table. And it was a terrible thing for us. It absolutely was. And I remember that in the 90s that as I was coming of age, I was high school in the 90s and it was much more acceptable and even celebrated if a woman could, quote, handle her alcohol mm-hmm. and be the party girl, uh, where certainly in decades past, that was certainly not uh, and nearly yeah. as well tolerated or celebrated. It became something you celebrated uh, yeah. in, in the 90s to be that party girl. Yeah, and you know it's really interesting how that's changed and and how we have these cultural trends because yes, in in the decades before that, it absolutely wouldn't be acceptable for women to drink like that. Um, but now I see it with the whole "mummy needs wine" movement. You know, it and, and it's so disgusting because there's nothing worse than a drunk mum. So it's like here, parenting is so hard, and you're so unsupported, and you're so exhausted, and there's no resources, and there's no free childcare. No wonder you drink. No wonder you want a Prosecco every evening or whatever, but not too much. Like only the fun drinking, the not taking care of your kids drinking, neglecting your kids drinking. Oh, that's bad. And you are, you, that's your fault. You're bad. So it's, again, like I'm seeing, and this is a millennial thing. I'm seeing this pop up with like day drinking play dates for mummy and baby. And I'm like, what the actual fuck is that? And as you well point out in your book, which I very much appreciated, there's absolutely a race and socioeconomic dynamic Mm -hmm. there at play. It's totally okay if you're white upper class woman to proclaim that mommy needs wine and take a picture of, you know, the wine and the kid in the playpen. But that doesn't play the same if you are a person of color and of lesser means. Right. Yeah. It's totally white privilege. There was, there was this group in Canada that is a whole, uh, mommy play, like moms need connection. You know, it's lonely, it's exhausting. Um, and, uh, they have day drinking play dates. We go to nice wine bars or whatever, the, and the kids are there. And they had a they had a day drinking festival. <laughs> they had a day they had a festival of day drinking. It's like insanity. And the the founder they actually now they actually have their own wine. They have their own branded wine. Anyway, the founder was like, "Look, like moms need connection," and I'm like, "I agree with you. I completely like moms do need this." Um, and, and, you know, the, the, we're reinventing motherhood. It was a very millennial, like we're millennials and we're reinventing motherhood. And, um, and I'm just like, this is, this is a basically, I, uh, I feel the founders, um, I, I, this is a cleverly disguised alcohol problem. You're dressing it up because let's just put a bunch of black mothers under a tent and call it a festival where they're drinking all day with the kids running around. Do you not think? people would look at that, that social services wouldn't be called. Without just question. The whole, thing, the whole thing falls apart. It all falls apart. <laughs> Without question. As you're putting together Soberful, we talked a little bit about 
understanding you had your own bottom in sobriety mm. with a relationship. And I so very much identified with the relationship patterns that you found yourself in. I found myself in very similar relationship patterns, thinking that this one is the one they worship me. They think I am <sighs> the greatest thing in the entire world. And I felt okay then because they were spending most of their waking hours feeding my fragile self-esteem and ego. And as soon as that started tapering off, my fear mechanisms started kicking in. Now, where you displayed that anxiety and tried to hold on more. I withdrew and, you know, went into my shell and, you know, self-sabotaged the relationship. But those relationship patterns, those continued for you yeah. in sobriety. And it, really was a catalyst for you to do some of this deeper work that ended up very much in this book. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, what I had done with alcohol is what a lot of people do is I just, I didn't have the tools to navigate this world. I didn't know, I didn't have the tools to deal with fear or disappointment. I didn't have the tools to understand what my feelings were telling me. I didn't know how to have boundaries to keep the good in and bad. I just didn't, I didn't have any of those things. So I defaulted to alcohol to to, to just do that for me, to just take away any uncomfortableness or unpleasantness or difficulty or internal rage inside of I just defaulted to alcohol. So when alcohol was gone, I still was toolless. I didn't know how to be in this where, you know, I was an emotional teenager. I mean, I was an emotional child. I had no idea how to deal with people, with conflict, with situations. I just didn't know. And, um, I got to three years sober and it was a romantic relationship that just pushed me over the edge. I had this pattern, the same pattern, exactly what you just described. And when the relationship ended, I would go into the black suicidal hole of despair. And at three years sober, and I was working as a psychotherapist, like I had done the training, like I knew about attachment, I knew about abandonment, I knew about the subconscious mind, but I could not stop it happening. And I was desperate like desperate and I was 30 and I remember thinking I may have to live the rest of my life not having a romantic relationship because I cannot tolerate this level of pain like I cannot go through this and that was the gift of desperation I was prepared to do whatever it took to try and just be someone who could form an attachment that was meaningful and it was this 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 deeper work of undoing these patterns and for me you know what it is because i'm sure there's people going what's the work what's the work <laughs> for me i'll say the key thing the key thing is resentment work the key thing is working diligently I wish you could see Charles. Like every time I say something, he's, he's like, every so often he's like, yeah, his hands are going up in the air. And he's like, <laughs> like I've just scored a goal. <laughs> but it's diligently looking at my resentments, which is really 
basically kind of deconstructing my perception of an interaction with someone. And when I kept, you know, like you would, you would let me down on Friday night and I'd be like, oh my God, that's because nobody really likes me or blah, blah, blah. And I would just get have these stories that I would tell myself that would trigger off these feelings and blah, blah, blah. And when I deconstructed all of that by doing the resentment work, and you can do it in the 12-step way, but there is other ways to do it. I began to see the story I was telling myself about myself was not actually true. And my perspective began to shift. Now, sobriety is just two things. It is consistency. That I hear this a lot. People say, I've tried everything. I've tried everything. I'm going to say what they haven't tried is consistency. Consistency is do the thing and just keep doing the thing. Don't try it for a bit. People try it for a bit, they feel a bit better and they stop doing everything that works. Consistency will lead to a shift in perception. And that's all sobriety is, is I perceive everything differently. So I feel like I give really long-winded answers and I know you had a question, I wanna go back to answer it. Um, so yeah, at three years sober, I, 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 it, it, I had to do this work and the resentment work was a key part of it. And I, I, that's why I wanted to write the book because I saw there's, there's some lots of great quick lit books out there and it's a big people, the more, this is a building public movement, you know, sobriety's come out of the closet, which is a very good thing. And there's lots of inspiration and identification from the Instagram accounts and the books, which is fabulous. But I see a lot of people lost and they don't have the how, like, okay, I'm sober and I didn't now I'm beginning to understand that I don't have the emotional tools, but what the hell are they? And that's what I wanted to put in the book, exactly what they were. I identified with all of that. All of it. In my journey, similar to yours, and but the difference was my emotional bottom and my substance use disorder bottom were at the exact same time. And I lost that relationship at the same time. I finally reckoned with my addiction and alcoholism. And I remember very distinctly my third wife looking at me one day and you drink every day. Well, yeah, baby, but it's not a problem. <laughs> oh, okay. How many do you have? I just have a few. Now she's counting. And I'm now trying to work. A, I got to have some of the, I'm drinking every day. I'm not eating. Because when I don't eat, I get drunker faster and it appears more yeah. socially acceptable. But I've got this Priorities. all worked 100%. But I'm dying. Mm. Right? Inside, I'm dying. And she's now caught on that I'm drinking every day. And uh, the problem with trying to outsmart somebody that's A, already smarter than you and B, not drunk, because it doesn't work very well, she quickly realizes that it's way more than a few every night. And then I'm getting hammered every night. Says, you got a problem. Mm. Hey, I can stop anytime I want. Okay. Okay, stop for 30 days. You know, I should have seen that coming. So I <laughs> stopped for 30 days on cigarettes and resentments, which I don't particularly recommend as a sobriety program. <laughs> and I told her, see, voila, I did it. And convinced her that it was okay to get some alcohol 
for my oldest son's birthday and Thanksgiving. My folks were coming over. And I never like to put myself in this box where I told myself I was going to only have a few because I knew myself better than that by then. I knew myself better than that. But I also knew this time, Veronica, everything was riding on this thing, like everything. I could not get drunk that I could not. I could not. I just knew that. Isn't it the worst? Yeah. But I also had to demonstrate that I didn't have a problem. Mm. And of course, I can't stop myself. And I make a complete mm. ass out of myself. I almost cut my hand off carving the turkey. My folks mm. leave. She looks at me and she genuinely meant this question. She wasn't trying to be a jerk. She, what is wrong with you? Because mm. you have everything. You, you have it. everything, right? Ever, what I've, is you, wrong with you? You have all the things. Mm. You've checked the boxes. You've we checked have a great the house. We boxes. both have great yeah. careers. Yeah. Everything's great. And I am a complete and unmitigated disaster. The discontent. Mm -hmm. You have. um, I can't be with myself. I just can't. And my son looks at her. He looks at me and he says, what are you talking about? It's just dad. He's just drunk again. And she's like, you got to go to treatment. Like, you got to go or we're getting divorced. And boy, I just didn't want to get divorced again. That's it. I just Mm. didn't want to get divorced again. I wasn't trying to get sober. I wasn't trying to get into recovery. I wasn't trying any of that. I was just just desperately just trying not to completely blow up another relationship and another marriage. Um, Mm. So I went only because I didn't want to incinerate another marriage. And I sat in that treatment counselor's office and for the first time, and I can't tell you why, you talk about that gift of desperation. You talk about that piece of it. I just could no longer continue to live like I was living. And I got honest with that counselor for the first time ever in my life. I got completely honest about my substance use and my addictions. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning, that true surrender and honesty and that genuine willingness to do whatever it took never to feel like that again. Yeah. But that's not enough, right? But that's where it started. Yeah. So I, the relationship stuff is so common, I feel, with people who have an alcohol problem. I, I mean, I, I, I have met people who are, have managed to kind of have a reasonably healthy romantic relationship and have an alcohol problem. But I want to say that they are in the minority. The majority, we, we have very dysfunctional ways of relating and our attachment patterns are very dysfunctional. My next book that I want to write is called The Relationship Myth. And mm. it is about that we have been sold this story that a romantic relationship will save us if we can just meet the one and have it the way that we believe it should be, we will be saved. And that what we're looking for is salvation. And I mean that in a non-biblical sense, we are searching for salvation in our romantic relationships because then we will be safe. And you can see the pattern straight back to our childhood experiences and parenting. Uh, Many of us, um, as I described, 
from our parenting and, and childhood experiences have uh, real feelings of not being safe in our environments. And I don't mean just like physical. I mean, it's it's the emotional safety. It's the, you know, that we weren't being hit or abused, but there was no emotional safety. And that that's, so we go into romantic relationships with that need and, and we're not meeting God, we're just meeting another human being and the weight of that need crushes the romantic relationship because we don't, it's all about perception. It's perceiving that person as our salvation when they're just a human being. And uh, I, I played out that pattern. I mean, when the relationships used to end, I, my biggest kind of like this huge wall of fear would come up inside of me and it was, how am I going to be okay? How am I going to be okay now that I don't have this? Like I didn't, I felt like I would was back on quicksand again. Like I didn't know how I was going to be okay. And I just that belief that it would save me. And that is why we, 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 we will, we have to do this work. And I also want to say like, cause I don't like the word at work. It's like, who wants to do work? <laughs> it's actually not work. It's effort. Having an alcohol problem is freaking hard work. That is hard work. Sobriety and the work of sobriety to become emotionally sober just requires consistent effort. And the good news is that has a payoff that you're really, really going to want. And that's really juicy and awesome. The payoff of putting that effort in to just learn to have boundaries. You know, I say to my clients when I take them on, like we cover a lot of stuff, but we often start with boundaries. And I'm like, if you do nothing else, nothing else, but just really practice this, your life will change beyond recognition. If you can have really good, healthy boundaries, it, it's life-changing. And so many of us don't just don't, didn't know how to do that. Um, so the, there's just, the, there's, there is riches here. There is rich, rich stuff in this invitation that we have received to to go down this this path of sobriety, there is so much more on offer than just not drinking alcohol and being hungover. And I don't want anyone to miss that. I don't want anyone to miss what's really on offer. Without question, there is an opportunity to become the people that we really want to be. By the time that I made that surrender moment and I cried like a baby in that treatment counselor's office, the chasm between who I was at that moment and who at one time I thought I could be was so great I didn't think I was ever going to get there, that it was too late. Today, I'm in a place that's far greater than I would have ever imagined, and it's not even really close. And it's because, call it work, call it, but I was able to uncover through the 12 steps and other work. I did therapy in parallel to the 12 steps. My mom died when I was 11 years old of cancer. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And there's the fertile soil for toxic relationship patterns to manifest mm. themselves mm. over and over as well as pouring gasoline, I always believed I had big addict and alcoholic switches, but the death of my mother at 11 years old poured gasoline on that fire. Yeah. It allowed me to 
become aware of the destructive, self-defeating, counterproductive behavior patterns. And that was mine. And I got to own that. And I got to understand how they manifested in my life. And then I started to be able to get tools on how to make different choices today, understanding those patterns. And it made all the difference for me. And instead of you talk about a lot about willpower in this book and how it's pretty useless against our alcohol addiction, against other addictions, against behavior patterns, it's pretty useless. Yeah. Well, yeah, it it is because it's a muscle. And, you know, we've every single one of us has has woken up and absolutely 100% sworn we're never going to drink or use again. And we have 100% meant it. Like, there, there is no, we're not lying. That's not a, dis- we are hundred Every fiber of our being, we mean every, that. Exactly. But what happens is, and then we can, and then we'll use our willpower to stay away from a drink. We'll say no, and we'll feel, feel really good. And then what will happen is a few weeks, what months, whatever, we will get resentful or we will feel frightened or we will, uh, uh, a wound from our past that hasn't healed will be triggered. And that feeling demands, demands anesthetic. So then your willpower is like insignificant in the face of this emotional turmoil that's going on inside of you that demands to be quietened. And if you do not have the tools, because you don't know how to deal with resentment or fear or to have boundaries or to ask for your needs to be met or be able to say what your feelings are, if you don't have those things, then your brain is just searching for what's the quickest, most effective way I can feel better. A bottle of wine, a bottle of wine. Hour and a half later, I'm going to be feeling good. And, and, and it works. That works. So that's, that's us in a nutshell. Indeed. And your five pillars are tremendous for a lot of different reasons. The first one's great and it's in the right order get moving, get your body moving, whatever it mm. is, something I understood intrinsically. I'm not sure why I understood that intrinsically, but right away when I got sober, I started going for long walks. I've always loved walking. So that's probably part of it. And then hikes. It's essential. It was instant relief for me. And I was listening to in the beginning, listening to a lot of Joe and Charlie uh, while oh, I was walking. Yeah. Oh man, Joe and Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. And I, absolutely subscribe to the idea that it took Bill and Bob to write the big book and Joe and Charlie to explain it. (laughs) And they just kept saying over and over, just run the experiment. Don't worry about whether this thing makes sense to you or not. Mm. Don't worry about that. It's not your job right now to try to figure this thing out. Mm. Your job is just to do these things to the best of your ability in the order that they come and then at the end judge the result that's it yes and that's the that's the consistency bit is and and it's the program it's something to hold on to and again 12 steps wonderful they're ancient spiritual wisdom they're not remotely original they're not like bill and bob didn't dream up something profoundly new you can trace the origins of them to the gnostics that predate uh christianity uh, and it's about self-reflection and all of this stuff has just been passed down 
Um, the self-examination, we, right? Yes. We have to reveal ourselves yeah. to ourselves. Yes. We need something that reveals ourselves to ourselves because that's what shifts the perception. It's all perception. There's also that famous book, A New Pair of Glasses, which is all about that. Yeah, we just see everything differently. And and that's like truly the most miraculous part, right? My My mother hasn't changed and the world <laughs> hasn't changed and nobody has changed. But how I perceive everything has just shifted in a way that just the results in my life are just, I, I can't even describe them. You changed. Mm. Yeah. You changed. They didn't change. You changed. And that's the same yeah. exact experience that I had is that at some point during this process, my experience inside my own skin and with the world fundamentally shifted. And my boss didn't change, my girlfriend didn't change, my kids didn't change, yeah. the world did not change. And that yeah. was that big aha moment, that really big aha, oh my, I changed. Mm. I changed. Yeah. Similarly, if I stop doing the work and doing the things I need to do on a daily basis in order to stay well and stay connected and on the beam, as it were, it shows up like everybody else changes. Shows up like mm -hmm. my boss is an a-hole, uh, mm -hmm. that my kids are a pain, that the driver's on the road. It shows up like everybody else is the problem. When I'm okay with me, I don't have to make you wrong. Indeed. <laughs> And that's the biggest red flag for me. I mean, that I find that such a useful tool. I remember when, um, so I had my first child when I was 10 years sober and I felt very confident going into that. Like, I remember someone saying to me, one of my former clients, you're going to be such a great mom. Like, you're so good at this stuff. Like, and I had this kind of smugness that I will, yeah, like I do. I know about emotional intelligence, all that kind of stuff. And I, I had a, my son and I, I did that. We just moved to a new place in Illinois. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any support. I had postnatal depression. He didn't sleep very well. I was exhausted. And um, I stopped doing every single thing that I'd ever done for 10 years that just kept me on the beam, just kept me emotionally well. And um, <clears throat> at about the, and, and I kind of remember thinking this, I, I need to, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be doing something. And I remember rationalizing because we're so good at rationalizing. I'm fine. It's not like I'm not working. I'm, it's not like I'm doing a whole lot. Like I'm just with the baby. So, and then at about the 10 month mark, every single thing my husband did pissed me off. The way he changed the diaper, the way he put groceries away, like the way he did this, the way he did that. Just, made just, me just the man breathing. Furious. <laughs> right. Furious. <laughs> and I have a wonderful husband. Like I won the lottery with my husband. He is, you know, I was just away in England for two and a half weeks and he just, you know, kept the home fires burning, was, came home, the house is spotless, the kids are done all, it, it, he's really amazing. But he doesn't change diapers the way I want them to change. He doesn't put groceries the way I want to. But you know what? That's fine. It doesn't matter. And and I this went on for about three weeks before I was like, oh, I'm not okay. Cause 
everything he does is pissing me off. I'm not okay. And I then I kind of saw how out of sorts I felt inside of myself. And I started doing what I needed to do. Now, here's what's really interesting, because we talk about this in the book with the pillar, the balance, uh, the pillar of balance, that whatever the question, balance is always the answer. Now, as a mom of a 10 month old baby, I couldn't do things the way that I'd done them before I had had children. I couldn't go to meetings or exercise or do any of this stuff. But what I had discovered that because my circumstances had changed, I still had those needs and I could meet them differently. That I found that if uh, that that there was different ways to get some exercise, there was different ways to connect with other sober people, that I could do it differently and then balance myself. And within about three or four weeks, I remember just feeling like so much better, so much better. Like, I, you know, if it, it was small things like I would do like an evening inventory before I went to bed. Couldn't do that because by the time I got to bed, I was completely exhausted. So I just did it in the morning and I did it maybe three or four times a week instead of every day. And, and that totally got me back on track. It made me feel balanced again. So when I talk about the uh, the five pillars and their movement, connection, balance, process and growth, balance is about it's the art of balance, noticing that as our circumstances change, that we will always have these different needs. We have to balance them differently. So yes, so that for me is such a powerful tool that I know as soon as I start just nitpicking with things that I'm not okay and I need to do something about my, myself. And that's that restless irritability and discontentedness yeah. Yeah. that rears yeah. its head. Mm-hmm. when I'm not doing the things on a daily basis I need in order to stay well. Yeah. And just like I don't apply my willpower to not drinking and the things I do are, don't seem like they're connected at all with not drinking. Like how is, how are these yeah. things going yeah. to, it's a byproduct. Mm-hmm. And so is yeah. my emotional sobriety. It's a byproduct of the action. And I have to start taking the actions first and mm-hmm. then my mind and body and emotional wellness follow the regular actions that I take. And for me, it's really important that I'm mindful in them. I'm really capable of going through the routine, checking the boxes and being checked out in prayer or in meditation or in meetings or whatever it is that I'm doing on a regular basis that's keeping me well. I also, through my experience, have learned that for me, being intentional and mindful in those actions is really important for me because there's a diminishing return if I'm literally just going through the motions and I'm not in it. Yes. Yeah. I I always kind of point that out to people that it's not magic. It's not like if we kind of create, you know, if we um, have a program and we just do it because we think, you know, if I do this, do this, do this, I'll be okay. It has to be, we have to mix things up. We have to, they have to stay fresh and alive for us. They have to be meaningful. Otherwise we are going through the motions and we won't get the result that, that we deserve. Indeed, when we talk about the five pillars, why are they ordered the way they are? I kind of, 
explain that, that they don't, they're not like one, two, three, four, five. They all kind of work at the same time. But for people just getting started, I want something very simple, simple and do, doable and achievable, which is the pillar of movement, which is about just, it's two things. It's about moving your body. So if you are doing, like if you're a regular exerciser, great, just keep doing that. Uh, but if you're not, then let's start with trying to walk 20 minutes a day because that will have a biological effect on your brain and it will lift your mood and you will start feeling better. But it's also about being purposeful about what you move towards and what you may move away from because we tend to drift in our lives when alcohol becomes the main event. We are We sort of drift away from the things that really matter to us, that give us meaning. We're just not intentional and purposeful. So it's about coming back to purposefulness about what what do I want to move? And it's about really looking at our values. What really matters to me? And am I moving towards that? And what do I want to move away from? And then, so kind of uh, movement connection and balance are all, you can do those pretty much from day one. Connection is that we all have to have meaningful connection. It's life-saving. It, it, we will die without it. I mean, the epidemic of loneliness, and it's such a defining characteristic of an alcohol problem. For, I mean, for me, that was the biggest thing. Without the loneliness question. was killing me. The, and I was always around people. I mean, I, I did isolate and I did drink on my own, but I was always able to be around people. But the not being seen or known and not being able to be show who I really was that it's not alcohol that kills people. It's loneliness. In my opinion, it, without it, question, it, right? without it's, question, it's horrible. And, and vulnerability is key in that connection. You talk about how important connection is. Yeah. Boy, is yeah. it ever the only time I was able to ever manufacture some sort of, uh, uh, I would say imitation of mm. vulnerability was when I was under the influence. Yeah. And yeah. I took that as a cheap substitute because I couldn't manufacture it any other way. I didn't know how. And I was yes. scared to death. I was scared to yeah. death of being yeah. vulnerable. Me too. And getting yeah. truly, I'd rather have died. Right? I 100% yeah. without question. Yeah. And being vulnerable. And so you talk about recovery meetings. What a great safe space to start to test out that vulnerability because you see other people being vulnerable in those sacred yeah. circles and they're giving you permission yeah, to be vulnerable also. Yeah. And, and support meetings are, are, and again, we have lots of different kinds now. It's not just AA if that's, that's right. not your thing. There's lots of, there is other options. Absolutely. And, and it is like, it's not, when you walk through the door, you don't have to pretend, right? You're in a freaking recovery meeting for an alcohol or drug problem. Like nobody's expecting you to be like together. It's not like going to the PTA meeting. So there's immediately that kind of, and, and I don't you love it? Like I love it when I'm oh. in a room full of recovered alcoholics and I don't know them, but I know them. Like I know them. And and it is, it's seeing other It's my people. tribe. That's yeah, my totally. tribe. Totally. And it's seeing people be vulnerable and survive it. That was for me the biggest thing because I would rather have gouged my eyes out with a spoon. <laughs> but then I saw other people like share stuff that was vulnerable. And then I saw everyone really kind of like connect to them. Like I saw that, that 
I just saw what it got and I saw that they survived it. And that was mind blowing to me. And, and it was that that then enabled me to take the risk that maybe if I showed another human being the grotesqueness inside of me, it's possible they may not run, even though that was my 100% belief. Like if I, I'm so grotesque inside, people will run screaming. But when I saw other people show, and, and, and what they showed was like, um, well, that's me. I think like that, like, oh, oh, I'm not remotely, here's the thing. Oh my God, I am not remotely original. <laughs> I'm just not, here are so freaking common garden. Who knew? And then I saw them like talk about this stuff and survive it. I, I could no longer avoid that. And, and so we have to have connection and there is only one pathway and that is through vulnerability. There's no other way. And we have to take that risk and we have to be discerning. Like, don't go and do it at the PTA right. meeting. Be discerning and, and you know, be discerning about the person or the people. Use your judgment. But uh, that will sustain, it's life-saving. It will sustain us and we, we have to have it. And there's three levels of connection as well. There's the intimate connection, is which is soulmates. And that's not necessarily a romantic partner. I always want to stress that. That's a best friend, a mentor. There's lots of different ways that can happen. There's friends and there's community. And that we need to have connection in all three levels. And if we don't have connection in one or two of those levels, we will feel a loneliness. And I, I went through that, like when I well, you know, when I moved and I had my my first son, I had my husband and we had a wonderful relationship, but I didn't know anyone. I didn't have friends in community and I felt very lonely and I had to work. That's the thing. You've got to work at this. You People are not going to come to your door and go, oh my God, you look like a really amazing person. Come and hang out with us. We have to show up consistently in, in different places in our communities and in our world so people can know us and we can know them. That That's the most important part. Without question, you talk a lot about these default modes that get embedded in us for a variety of different reasons and the stories our egos tell us and our ego is often not our amigo because it wants what's comfortable as you well state in the book it wants what's predictable it wants what's perceived as safe the story i told myself prior to getting into recovery seven plus years ago was if you knew the real me if you knew who i really was you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. If you knew the things that I had done, mm, if you knew the twisted thoughts that were in my brain, <laughs> you would not want to be around me. And being vulnerable with people that thought like I thought, did what I did, and drank like I drank, gave me the opportunity to test whether that was true or not. And I had to do some work and get ready for that. And as you well point out, 12 steps is a, is one pathway to be able to reveal yourself to somebody and those destructive patterns of behavior and be vulnerable and take off all of the masks. And here's who I am warts and all good and bad by the way you know if uh if, uh, if i'm doing this right i'm taking a real inventory of myself and then know that that person is still there they're gonna look me in the eye and you know say uh i i still love you i i still love you 
uh, as a brother in recovery mm. after hearing so, all of that. So here's the thing. When you believe that, that I cannot show you who I really am, I cannot believe that. The only choice that we have then, the alternative to that is I just have to kind of show up in the way that I think you want, in a way that I think you will approve of, in a way that I think that you will, that's, that's the only, there's which no is exhausting, which, which is, is exhausting. Only, it's exhausting, but it's also a soul killer. We just, when you show up in the world as a fake person, I, I, the loneliness killed me and the, um, incongruence killed me. Like I, like I would literally walk away from situations thinking, why did I say that? I don't believe that. I didn't mean that. I don't even like that person, but I just performed. I just performed this thing. And I would walk away with such self-disgust and self-loathing. Yeah. Feeling and it, like a fraud. Yeah. And, and the disconnection from who you really are and how you present to the world, that is like, that is one of the worst kind of pain is, is not showing up as you really are. And, and, and that is the best gift to be now fully connected with who you really are, to be real, to be authentic. Like there is no buzz better than that. Like that is the best buzz. That's the land. That's, that's, that's putting your first foot on, as you talk about in the book, the land. Yeah. Yeah. The right? land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, like that's so that's what i talk about in the book there's these two lands and we believe that we need alcohol to get there but actually we can get to that land and we can get this sober and it's better like the like you know and this is why we have this thing right right now what's happening between us as we're talking is we know that the connection that we have with random people it's indescribable to any kind of connection we thought when we had when we were drinking. It, it has such depth to it. Which I love the recommendation of finding local recovery meetings. Here, I don't know if this is nationwide, but for sure here in the Twin Cities metropolitan area, there are things called all recovery meetings, which I think are just tremendous. You can mm. come from any recovery pathway or none and go to these all recovery meetings. And it's such an accessible way to be able to start to build and form these relationships and these bonds. And the recommendation that I always say is find one that you really like that feels like home to you and just keep going to that one and find that one that some people call it a home group, call whatever you want, but find the one that you're going to go to once a week, hook or crook, no matter what, that's the one you make. Because mm. that's what I also did at previous attempts at recovery was I would just kind of bounce around. And anytime I started getting a little too close, with these folks, I'd bail and find a different one so I could keep everybody at arms. Like, find one that you really like, stick to it, and keep going to it, and allow those people to really see you and and get to know you and build those yeah. meaningful connections. And what a great bridge. You talk about bridging a lot in this book, too, which I love. Uh, what a great bridge into the land of meaningful and sustainable connection. Yes. Yeah. And then, the, so then the next pillar is balance, which is what I've talked about. It's just, just by the way, the hardest one for me, Veronica, it's not even close, not even close. The balance one is the hardest one for me, right? I'm a hundred percent or in, or I'm all out, you know? So I still definitely work on that uh, on, a, on a daily basis. 
And me too. And that's the kind of whole point is you'll never graduate from that. Like it's, and we will always, I mean, I get out of balance. The thing is now at, at a certain point I can notice it and I can go, okay, the reason I feel like this is I'm out of balance. I'm not, you know, and it's different. I remember when I had little tiny kids, it's like, I just need once a month, a night out with my girlfriends, not being mom, being Veronica, like before I'd be able to do that every week, but now I can do it once a month. Like it, it's, I, I notice it because I, when I begin to feel uncomfortable in my own skin is when I usually am out of balance. I'm not, you know, getting enough sleep or eating right, or I'm working too much, or I'm not feeling, feeling fulfilled, or I haven't seen enough of my kids or enough of my friends. And it's, it, it's constantly changing because our circumstances constantly change. So it's just recognizing and, and it's a practice. You will never graduate from that. It is a practice that sometimes I'm really good at, sometimes I'm not so great at, but I continue to practice it. That's all. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, before a big part of that is, you know, like listening to your body. Like I was never able to do that. I was never able to listen to the data from my emotions or listen to my body. I just was disconnected. Now I can listen to those things and go, you know what? You know, I don't know. I, I'm going to tell you when you get post 45 is when I started to notice aging. Like I'm like I, before I could always push through, I could always push through and just do it. <laughs> and then I was, I, I just kind of in the last like four years, I've noticed aging and I'm like, I can't do that. I'm too tired. I can't do all those things in one day. It's just too tiring for me. And that's an age thing. That's because I'm almost 50 and it's like, I'm rebalancing again. So it's, it's really, it's an art and, and it's also helpful to have another person to help you reflect that. Cause I, 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 uh, you know, I have several people and, you know, quite often I'll, I'll kind of like, Oh, you know, they'll say what's going on. And I can be honest and go, Oh, well, this is going on. They'll go, you know, X, Y, and Z just happened. Why are you trying to do that as well? And I'm like, Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I realize I can see it now. So having someone to reflect that with is super helpful. Indeed. And I love that you use the word practice. Much of what we're doing here as we're building meaningful and enduring and rewarding recovery is a practice that we're not good at in the beginning, but we continue to do it on a regular yeah. basis and we get better at it. Yeah. One of the things I think you hit well on is that identification of how it feels when I'm X. How does it feel when I'm Y? What does fear feel like? What does anxiety really feel like? What what do these emotions feel like? What does it feel like when I am out of balance? And we can notice what that feels like in our bodies and we can start then being able to name it. And I never, you know, I, I, I had no idea how to be able to even identify emotions, let alone start to do the work of... um sitting with those emotions and then choosing the next right thing to do right yes. in a mindful yeah. intentional way but the first step is just being sober and just just knowing what it feels like to be in that emotion yeah exactly yeah i mean these are all skills right. and the last two pillars are process and growth and process is really about understanding how your past will show up in your present and i, I you know i have clients say to me i don't want to recover for the past it's like well great, but your past is showing up every single day in a way that's very unhelpful to you. And um, I'm assuming 
you would like things to feel a little more easy, a little more straightforward, then have this, this, um, this thing that keeps tripping you up. So it, again, it's really about understanding ourselves. It's understanding, I think attachment is very important, our attachment patterns, understanding why we have these responses, why we feel the way we do. You know, limiting beliefs, that's a huge, really powerful piece of work. The story you tell yourselves about yourselves where uh, an event happens and then we have a story about why that event was the way that it was, why it was canceled or why you weren't invited or whatever, whatever. And that happens every day. And, and that is just profoundly life-changing when the result of doing this process work and, and, and understanding yourself and a big part of it is the resentment work is for me where I got to is, and this was freedom on a level that I cannot even describe it. This is the fourth dimension was that I realized nothing was personal. Mm. And that freedom is, that's the fourth dimension of existence that the big book talks about is that I took everything personally, right down to, to the work I did around my mother, because that's like, it feels personal. I'm the child, she was the mother. Of course it's personal. Beginning, being in this shift where I began to see how she related to me, spoke to me, the things that happened all came from her perspective, her limiting belief, her childhood wounds. And they affected me for sure, but they weren't personal. She didn't do and say that stuff because she wanted to hurt me or whatever. It actually came from a very loving place, but when it came through her, by the time it came through her filter system, it wasn't recognizable as that. So not taking what other people do to be personal about me, that's where process work gets us to, is that we, that's, and that is freedom. So we hear this word freedom a lot in sobriety circles, and we think it's free, like being free from alcohol and wanting to drink. That's one level. Freedom is freedom in our minds. It is so I'm, I'm not leaving this interaction, telling myself a story for the next few days about Charles this and that and blah, 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 like he thinks this and did he mean that? I don't know. Like I just not doing that anymore. Now I have freedom in my mind. And boy, can I do a lot of stuff with that extra space. Without question, and my resentment work was transformational. I was one of those that really liked a good resentment. It made me feel powerful. And then I could use it as an excuse to get, as you put in this book, a free drunk. The free drunk, the free right? Drunk, right? Yeah. Any, right? I'm going to drink, any... drink at you is what I'm going to do. I'm going to drink <laughs> any... at you. Anyone would drink if they had had the week 100%. that I had. So it's totally not my fault. Totally if you not knew my fault. what it was like to be me, you'd drink too. Right? Exactly. And exactly. the the resentment work was transformational. I still do that every day as a part mm -hmm. of my meditative practice, as I consciously yeah. and very mindfully let go of resentments because they will absolutely be get me back to that restlessness, irritability, and discontentedness, in which at some point will leave me no choice but to engage in some sort of addictive behavior. So, so resentment work for me is paramount. And as you said, really does allow me to understand that you are we're flawed human beings and we're all doing the best we can with what we have and some of us you know just are are hurting people and, we, and we're not doing it on purpose right and so you know the stories that we tell you know, i used to 
be terrible at taking criticism. I was convinced every time you criticized me that you were doing it on purpose to make me feel awful, right? And that there was no such thing in my mind as constructive criticism. You were just attacking me, right? And so we can we can take because it's it. all about me. It's just all <laughs> everything's all about me. It's all oh the bondage of self. It's all about me. Everything everyone does and says and what you think you're all thinking about me, 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 me. That is bondage. <laughs> and when I can let all that go. And when I can get the big resentments out of the way, and then I can continue that work on a daily basis, that is the definition of emotional, mental, and spiritual freedom. Yes. Yeah. And that last pillar, by the way, is the is the money pillar. That's, that's yeah. That's yeah. the money pillar. Right. Yeah, that's the, that's, the whole that's the whole game. We're just trying to grow to get to the people that we want desperately to be that we've been yearning to be all our lives that <sighs> still somehow we think we might be able to maybe get there but it's just been obfuscated we've been self-sabotaging and tripping ourselves up and pouring alcohol all over it for so long but now we're at this growth phase and that is the phase that 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 pillar is the work we do that gets us to where we want to be the growth the call to growth is in all of us. It's the reason that we keep coming back to the place of wanting to stop drinking. There is something inside of us calling, as long as we have breath in our body, calling us to be who we really are. And it is the reward of all of this is growth. And and with growth always comes fear and resistance because it's growth is always new and new is always a bit scary. And again, that's just a skill we can learn to navigate around the fear and resistance and the voice of the ego. But growth... Like I, you know, I, in May, I'll be 22 years sober. When I was 19 years sober, I like where I was, I was in an amazing place, but I couldn't go back there because it's smaller than where I am now because the growth never stops. This expansion of um, revealing yourself to yourself of, you know, the, the big thing is bandwidth. When we don't drink and when we're not arguing with ourselves about where we're going to drink or not, or, or we're not like telling these stories about what people we think people said and what they meant and blah, it means we just have a lot more space in our heads and a lot more energy which is where we can grow into the people that we're meant to be and and in that extra bandwidth we get from being a sober and be emotionally sober that is where our extraordinariness is and i want to tell you i've done this work for a long time i've been around people in recovery thousands and I there is extraordinariness in all of us it is a trait that we have and I think it's because we have known the dark abyss we have potential for extraordinariness and I've seen that in every single person in recovery that I have ever met and and we get access to that and that allows us to grow in ways that right now will blow your mind Without question, what I love most about Soberful is it answers the question that once we put down the booze, now what? Mm, mm. Now what? If we just put down the booze, then the mind and the emotional turmoil in our bodies are kind of out to get us because they're all on autopilot and working together and conspiring 
to get me restless, irritable, and discontented again, because that's the way it's been programmed for many, many years. So that default programming is out to get me. And Soberful answers the question of what do I do when it gets real, when life gets lifey. When life gets lifey. (laughs) That's what I wanted to give people is just the tools, you know, something to like, hold on to and and to use and to hopefully improve their emotional well-being while they're on this journey job well done veronica job well done we've got some closing questions are you ready okay i'm ready go what does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of um inventory which is um looking at uh right writing writing out in a very specific way my resentments my fears and a gratitude list um and uh, a couple of prayers usually um and sometimes a, a a process to look at my limiting beliefs i am a huge advocate of gratitude it's a game changer mm-hmm. and if we try hard enough we can find plenty to be grateful for without mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. what book speaking of quitlet or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery you know, I want to say The Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. Mm. That was recommended to me early, early on. And um, I've never, like, I didn't grow up in any kind of religion. So I was very, like, I had no prejudice. I was like, that's nice, but not for me. Um, and I didn't have any prejudice, prejudice against the God word. Again, that was nice, but I don't really see how it's relevant to me. Um, the Sermon on the Mount de- deconstructed the Christian message from the Bible in a way that I found so accessible and and just completely, um, I got it. Like it just really made sense. Um, so that that's the book that I deeply love. I am in the middle of that. So I can very much identify with that. It's a, a masterpiece in terms of, as you said, deconstructing the Christian message in a way that is super relatable and practical. It, it deconstructs deconstructs the spiritual truth that's in the Bible for me. That's what it did. And it distills it, it, right? It distills yeah, that yeah. truth. Yeah. It, it, I've, it's, it's a fantastic book. He's an amazing writer. He has another book that I have. I think it's around the year with Emmett Fox. So it's like a reading each day. I, and I dip into that regularly as well. What is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery to date do the steps you will be contacted i'm celebrating again (laughs) what is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far i think the greatest challenge for me was my when i had my second child um when he was about a year old, he was diagnosed with lead poisoning from the house that we were renting. Uh-huh. And lead poisoning in children can cause catastrophic brain damage. So um, I, I was had postnatal depression. I didn't. I, we just moved again. I didn't know anyone. This uh, and I. It was the that was the worst thing that's happened to me. I blame myself. We had to move. Blah 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 blah. And it was when. Um, I was very isolated. It was the second time that I'd, I'd stopped doing everything that works. I did it both times after both my kids don't recommend that. 
And I started um, fantasizing about self-harming because I wasn't going to drink or do anything like that, but I was in deep emotional pain. And I, I'd never understood that before. And I, I, well, as soon as I started fantasizing about it, I realized I was in big trouble and I needed help and I got help. Um, and he's okay. He's, he's okay. He's, he's, uh, we get him tested a lot and he's all, it, I, I believe we got him out. We were able to move out two weeks later. I believe we got him out and it was discovered early enough and we got him out early enough. And he is a perfectly normal and balanced and wonderful kid. But that was definitely the hardest thing I've ever been through. That fear that must have yeah. taken hold upon that revelation that your child was exposed to. Fear is kryptonite for us. If yeah, we don't, if we can't find a way to work through it, yeah, and and also it was entirely preventable. Mm. I mean, if I had known then what I now know mm. about lead, and I can spot it at a hundred paces now, I am an unexpected lead expert. There is a lot. <laughs> there is a lot I know about lead mm. poisoning. Um, I it was entirely preventable, and I blame myself for that. And taking that bat back out. Those overpowering emotions that can be debilitating. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 without a doubt, that when when you go through something like that, you know, a child being sick or whatever, that is not something that you can go through on your own or just with the support of your partner. That is something you need outside support and help for. And, um, I, I, as soon as I realized that, I, that's what I did, and that's what got me through. What is your greatest success in recovery thus far? Oh, 100% my family. Um, mm. I, I've married a wonderful man. We've been together for um, 16 years. Um, I, I ha my two children, my two sons who are just, you know, just the other day, my eldest son, we were talking about something. He said, we're having a heated discussion about something. And he said to me, mommy, you hurt my feelings when you said that. And I was just like, oh. he feels safe enough to be able to say, when you said that, you hurt my feelings. And I was able to hear him and say, you're right, that I, I regret saying that to you, Xavier. And like being able to have that kind of healthy interaction. And the other thing I do with my kids, um, I practice something called EFT, emotional freedom technique, which I use with my kids. And they ask for it now. Like uh, we, we use it whenever they feel emotionally dysregulated or upset. We we tap, we, we call it magic tapping to help them uh, get back to emotional balance. And that for me is the one of the most sacred spiritual things I have ever done. That being said, and how amazing your beautiful family sounds, as you well put in the book, Veronica, that's not the actual prize. You're the prize. You are yes. the prize. We're the prize. As we go yeah. through this, we're the actual prize that we get at the end of this thing. We get us. We get to yeah. really fall back in like and love with ourselves to the extent that we can have these meaningful connections and relationships. And because you found you, you found him. Right. Yes. Yeah, it, that's, that's exactly true. I, I became the I became the one I became the person that I always wanted to be. And my relationship was the cherry on the cake, but never the cake. 
you talk about the tapping, which I love. I want to put a link in that. And so we'll do that in the show notes. We'll have a link about tapping. I think that's great. You talked about EMDR also in Mm -hmm. the book, which I did. And that was transformational for me in my early Mm. recovery. Getting through trauma was the EMDR. So we'll put Mm. some information regarding the EMDR as well, because it was transformational from a trauma perspective. Two questions left. First one's a doozy. Last one's fun. (laughs) What is something, if there is something, there might not be, you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? I don't think there's anything that I haven't forgiven. I feel like very much at peace with the relationship with my dad. He died when I was 18. But I asked him when I was about 14 or 15 if I could come and live with him because the the circumstances with my mom were were very difficult. And he didn't. And he could have. And he should have. I haven't totally forgiven myself for not knowing more about the house that had the lead mm. i'm in a lot in a much better place but i if i could change anything it would be that now for the fun one <laughs> what song symbolizes recovery to you oh man we have a spotify playlist that we've built so we put this song in our Spotify playlist for each interview of the song that symbolizes sobriety or recovery to you. And well, Veronica is deep in thought coming up with an amazing song to add to that playlist. Just know that all of the things that we talked about are going to be in the show notes. How to contact Veronica will be in the show notes, how to get a copy of, and I highly recommend you do Soberful will be in the show notes, as will be her quit lit recommendation and some really great information about tapping and EMDR. Veronica, what song are you going to bless us with? Um, I wish I could have thought about this, but there's two that come to mind. The first one was Amazing Grace. Mm. But I want to say um, Hallelujah. The Jeff Buckley version is like, so off the top of my head, those. We'll put two in. (laughs) Okay. We'll put two in because I surprised you with the closing questions. So you get both in Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley is Hard Stop. One of my favorite songs of all time. And it's really not even close. Yeah, I mean it's it's of a it I mean that's a, it's of a whole other level, like it. I mean, yeah, it's 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 a spiritual truth. Without question, Veronica, thank you so much for joining us on the Way Out podcast. I had an absolute blast. Me too. This was so. Good. I've done a lot of interviews recently, and this I want to say is my favorite so far. <laughs> You heard it, folks. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. 
If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.